Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, we know that when we talk about the benefits of Christ, that we talk about the spiritual blessings. We've covered this, that as we take hold of Christ by faith, we take hold of the person of Christ, uh, his redemptive merits become our merits, our accomplishments, as they are worked in us in the power of the Holy Spirit. So one of the struggles we can have that as we profess, uh, as we're, you know, our union with Christ and being united to him, taking hold of Christ uh, by faith, then maybe the redemption of God is only a spiritual action. In other words, that God only cares about the, the spiritual life within us, our souls, and everything else is really um, indifferent. He doesn't really care about the physical needs. Uh, so this could imply that while God is taking care of the spiritual problem, we need to take care of the physical problem. And so when, when we go through this, we can certainly see this as a thinking in a form of sort of a Gnostic uh, type of understanding that there's this uh, huge divide between the spirit and the flesh and that God doesn't really care about the flesh. And so when, when we hear that, say, okay, well, we, we don't think that's the case truly because God did create us as human beings who have a body and who have a soul. And as he created us in, in this way, he joined the two together. We, we also might think that, okay, so, so if we know that, we don't really know how that fits together. We also know that we're told not to worry. Uh, we can certainly identify worry as a sin. We shouldn't have anxiety. Uh, that's sin. We, we can certainly identify that. But I think there's, there's a way in which Christ presents this that overcomes these two realities. On the one hand, we're, we're reminded that God cares for the physical. And we also hear how Christ is tender in understanding who we are as a people prone uh, to be aware of the true stresses and things that we face in this life. And yet, as he tells us not to worry, it's not sort of a slap in the face where he just slaps us and says, well, this, this anxiousness, this worry is, is just a sin. He actually does more to develop this reality or the, or the promise of the gospel. And so how does God do this? How, how do we know that the Lord truly encourages us and tells us not to worry about our day-to-day -day lives. Well, we'll see first he's a creator-sustainer, basically uh, going through the catechism as this Lord's Day first presents God as a sustainer of this world, uh, and secondly, as a continual provider. And so let's begin with the creator-sustainer. The catechism wants us to understand God created this world. Now we can say, well, that's obvious. We have Genesis 1. We know this is true. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we know this is true, that God has created the world. He called it into existence. He owns it. And we might say, well, why is that so important in terms 
of God caring for this creation continually. Why does that matter? Well, if you think about what happens, I mean, we can use an analogy. We buy a piece of equipment or a car. I'm sure none of us have ever had a bad deal we can think about. But whenever we buy a piece of equipment, there's always a learning curve, right? We want the person to tell us this is what you need to do to keep it running. These things need massaging. Uh, these bolts need to be inspected, so on and so forth, right? And as we, we learn the little quirks of this piece of equipment, uh, hopefully we, we keep it going. And so there's a learning curve that we have to go through. But if you actually create or build something, there is no learning curve. It's been designed, it's been implemented, and it's been manufactured. And, and that's the point that the catechism's making. God doesn't come to this world and bargain with other gods and say, now, orient me towards this, this world and, and, and how this world functions and orients itself. Bring me up to speed. The, the catechism wants us to understand God created this world. God knows how this world works. And so if our children ever ask us, well, why should we obey God? Well, on the one hand, we say, well, obviously, because he's God. I mean, that's just an answer in and of itself, if you want to be rather blunt. But the other reality is God made us. When God lays out for us how we are to live, uh, he's not doing this to harm us. Now, we struggle. We don't do this perfectly. I'm not saying we're going to reach perfection. But if we take like Psalm 119, why would we want to conform to this God? Well, he's telling us, if you want to live life to the fullest and, and truly live to your potential and, and, and see what it's like to have a joyful life, live within his boundaries. He made you. He created you. He's actually laying out for you that as you do these things and seek to please your God and seek to live for his honor and glory, you actually have a wholesome life, a, a good, enjoyable life. And so, yes, and, and if that doesn't work, just go back to the blunt answer and say, because he's God. Uh, either one's fundamentally true. So now when, when we talk about God being the creator, we have to understand also that God has a vested interest in this world. He's created this world. He's vowed to bring this world to its conclusion, to its goal. Sending Christ puts that stamp in that reality that this world is going to its goal. So God doesn't have a learning curve. God's the engineer. God's the creator. God's the one who's made it, manufactured it, knows its parameters, how it is to function. Uh, he doesn't have to learn these things. And God has bound himself to bring this to its goal. And so that's, that's the first thing the catechism's driving home in terms of the first function generally of the Father. And so how do we get here? Well, if we turn to Luke 12 and we find the context of this passage, uh, in the general context or broader context of Luke, Christ has turned his face to Jerusalem. So Luke 9 verse 51 is a very significant text in Luke's gospel. Uh, because in Luke 9 verse 51, this is where Christ actually turns his orientation, turns his focus to Jerusalem and what he must do. In Luke 9.50 uh, through about 55, you have the Samaritans who invite Christ to stay in their village. They know that Christ's attention and focus is on Jerusalem, and so they tell Christ not to come to their village. Now, this is important. 
because it's telling us what we as humans want. We don't want to live in a sin-cursed world while we wait for redemption. The fundamental reason why they turn Christ away is they want a glorified village. Christ is not bringing a glorified village. He's working in the context of a sinful world, going to the cross, going to be raised, and must ascend. He must fulfill that mission uh, to bring this world to its goal. So even in Luke 9, it's not so much Christ thinking of his people, but it's Christ thinking about the whole uh, benefit of his work. What must he do to bring this world to its goal? He has to die. He has to go to Jerusalem, fulfill the word of the prophets, and experience uh, the sanction of death in our place. And as Christ does this, we know uh, that he's going to take care of this. Now, our struggle, as Christ goes on and, and you know, goes and, and preaches his sermon regarding his mission, the struggle we have is that we can still go into this mindset as Christians and think, well, this kingdom's a spiritual kingdom now. That's the intention of this kingdom being spiritual. And if we look at Luke 9 through <clears throat> chapter 12, I don't know what's going on with my voice. If we look at Luke 9 going on to <clears throat> chapter 12, uh, we have this picture and this promise of, of what the Lord's going to do. And it sounds like this kingdom is purely spiritual. Luke 9 verse 58 Christ says foxes have holes, or the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now we, we can read that and we can say, see, these are just spiritual promises. He's, he's not concerned about the physical welfare. Now we know from Luke 9.58, Christ's point is that the kingdom has a bigger uh, perspective than the Samaritans have, than his disciples have. The kingdom is going beyond this age. His goal is to bring this to consummation. But we can read 9 verse 58 and say, oh, see, uh, this is only about the spiritual blessings or the spiritual uh, benefits of Christ. Well, as Christ goes on and we come to our context here in Luke 12, uh, we have verses 1 through 3, where Christ is the one who reveals the secret things. He praises the Father. We have in verses 4 through 7 where Christ exhorts uh, the disciples to fear God over man. We have in verses 8 through 12, it's important to acknowledge Christ before man. We have uh, the rich fool who, uh, interestingly enough, as a parable prior to this call not to be anxious, uh, he's actually, in a sense, you can make a case being responsible. Uh, he's acknowledging he has an abundant harvest, he acknowledges, and as he has this abundant harvest, uh, he's to build storehouses. And as he builds storehouses for this harvest, he's recognizing that he's going to have security. And so we, we can look at that and say, well, this is responsible. What's, what, what's wrong with that? But yet Christ says, you fool, you do not know if you're going to live uh, through tomorrow. And so the, the point here is that, that when you read that going up to this passage in verse 22, you, you might think, well, are, are we to be uh, prepared? Are we to have food in our fridge? Is it sinful to have freezers in our garage? Is it sinful for us uh, to want uh, to, to make sure that 
you know, certain things are in order. Is that really sinful? Is that really wrong? Is this kingdom only a spiritual kingdom? When we go to Luke 12, 22 through 34, this is where Christ is clarifying the frustration and, and laying out the significance of the parable prior to this. You see, Christ goes through a, a few things, and we'll, we'll touch on this in more detail in the next point. But he calls attention to the ravens. So you think of the ravens as contrasted to the man who's building the storehouses. And the ravens are absolutely irresponsible, aren't they? I mean, they, they don't store anything up. They don't plan their meals. Uh, basically, they're going through life being sort of uh, carefree and, and indifferent and not really thinking much about two minutes from now. That's how Christ presents them. What is more, when you think about ravens in the Old Testament, Leviticus 11, verse 15, Israel is not to eat this bird because this bird is considered unclean. It's uncouth. The people of Israel are not to be identified with this raven. And yet, Christ is saying, notice how my father cares for this bird that my people are not to associate with. My, my people are not to consume this bird. It's an unclean, disgusting, filthy bird. Uh, that's what Leviticus tells us. This bird is absolutely irresponsible. And yet what happens? Christ says this bird has no storehouses. This bird has nothing. And yet my father in his providence, this bird that should be seen as an enemy of God, God cares for it. He feeds it. Sees to it that, that everything it needs to, to live out the number of days that, that God has provided and numbered for this particular raven it will have what it needs to get through those days. There's no plan, no barn. It's God who feeds them. And so notice that, that Christ not saying, well, they're very skilled hunters or they're opportunists, which we could say about a raven. He doesn't say that. God feeds them. God puts the food in their path. And so that's God caring for this creation. And again, when you look at Luke 12, uh, 22 through 34 versus Matthew 6. Matthew um, expounds this with more examples and, and different examples. And I think it's important what Luke says just by giving these two examples. Now the other example that Matthew also uses is the example of the wildflowers. Provided you're not sneezing when they come out, uh, they are rather beautiful to observe. Uh, we, we certainly are blessed in, in Montana of having this same sort of understanding of what Christ is speaking of. Uh, we can know that it's spring. We can look at the hills. Uh, we can see that they're painted in colors. And we can see the wildflowers that are blooming. And it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And then we know when spring is over because we move to summer and these wildflowers burn up. They die. They are consumed by the fire as Christ presents it. As they burn up and they spring to life, Christ is saying, what, what does this mean? He's saying, well, this doesn't happen accidentally either. So Christ is saying that God in his providence, the Father by his providence, sees to it that each year he pays attention to the details of painting the hills, springing up these flowers, bringing this beauty. And, and this beauty is, is for what purpose, we, we can say, because it just burns up. And that's Christ's point. It's a beauty where we can marvel at our God and his providence and be reminded this God really cares for this creation. 
And then Christ says even Solomon and all his riches, all his glory, everything that Solomon has, even Solomon could not replicate the beauty of what the Father does. So Christ is saying if, if, if God allows for these things to spring up, to exist for a time, and then he also allows it for it to die and to be done, he's saying, well, what do you think God thinks of you? What, what do you think he thinks of this creation? God is bonded to his creation. Exactly what the catechism is telling us. The Lord knows how to bring this world from season to season. He knows how to see to it that this creation will go to its end. The Father has not abandoned it. And so first and foremost, it's the assurance that the Lord tends to this world, tends to this creation. But now we, we notice ourselves. As I mentioned, we can fall into a trap of thinking God is one who only cares about the spiritual. We're joined to Christ, regenerates us, gives us spiritual blessings. It's a spiritual religion, and that's all it is. But then we notice what the Catechism tells us, and the Catechism puts us in very strong words. I trust and do not doubt. So this means that in terms of our walking by faith, we, we've already covered that we trust that the person of Christ is sufficient to bring us through the final judgment. His work is sufficient and complete. But at the same time, we're also trusting that our Father provides for us, sees to it that our needs are met, that he provides for us both body and soul. So everything we need spiritually to get through this age, he will provide. Everything we need physically to get through our day-to-day -day life, he will provide. And notice then that the Catechism reminds us, as the Reformers knew so well, maybe not Ursinus so much as Calvin or Luther or Debray, certainly, but certainly he's, he's aware of that history. He's not naive of what has happened. And so as one who is somewhat of a contemporary of those who were burned by the stake, he knows that this life is not just unicorns and rainbows all the time. He knows that there's going to be a hardship. And so he also points out the reality that God, in his providence, sees to it that everything that we face, that, that we think is, is against us, and it may legitimately be against us, hardship, toil, uh, whatever it may be that comes our way, famine, persecution, these sorts of things mentioned in Scripture. That we have the assurance that God is so sovereign in his providence that he turns it not for our good, this is what I like about the catechism, but for my good. And it's inviting us to, to look in our lives and say, listen, how has God in his providence ultimately cared for us? And seeing throughout history how God has provided for us. He has cared for us. And that's the invitation of this, of trusting that even though we may not understand why we endure what we endure or why we're going through whatever we're going through, whatever it may be, God's still walking there in the midst of us. He's still leading us. He has not abandoned us. And we know that God is so mighty and so sovereign and such a faithful father that he will bring us into his living room to dwell with him forever. That's where the catechism wants us to fundamentally find the application of this. Now, how do we get there in terms of God telling us not to be anxious and Christ telling us not to be anxious? When we return to Luke, 
It's important to note that as we've gone through the example of the ravens and we've gone through the wildflowers that's presented here, we know that God isn't one who just cares for the animals. There's a reason that, that he calls us to our attention. God wants us to understand and he calls us. He says, do not be anxious. It's kind of a nice, tender reminder. And yes, he is saying that if we worry, that's a sin, something we need to put off. But what I cherish about what Christ is doing here is he could summarize this in one verse. He can simply say, God's sovereign, do not worry, you are sinning if you do, period, move on with the sermon. Christ could say that, that that's an appropriate thing for him to say as our Lord. And he's right. He he would be 100% right to do that. But Christ knows what it's like to experience hunger. Christ knows what it's like to experience temptation. Christ is not indifferent. When Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, of course, he's yet without sin, as Hebrews reminds us. But he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Christ knows the pangs of hunger. And so Christ doesn't turn to his disciples and just rebuke them. He understands we're we're going to struggle with this. So Christ spends a little time here. He says, hey, don't don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or or what you're going to put on. Now, again, he could stop right at verse 22. That's a sufficient stopping point. That is sufficient for us to understand. But Christ wants us to to comprehend there's something bigger, something greater than this. And he doesn't just stop there. He says, notice then, life is more than food and body is more than clothing. So we we can say, okay, well, I I guess that's true. I mean, after all, we we could go through life without clothing and and still live and still exist. may not be appropriate, but, but that's a true statement. But Christ is getting at a point. He's saying, listen, you need to look beyond those immediate felt needs, those things that you're immediately concerned about. In other words, he's not saying don't eat, and he's not saying don't put on clothing. He's just saying understand there's something bigger than you. God's out there. God is the one who cares for us. And and the intention of that, because all of a sudden now, he moves to the ravens. As we've already mentioned, these ravens are unclean, disgusting animals. Israel's not to be associated with them. They're they're associated with death. We're not to to care about them. So in a sense, we can see the ravens as being the, the creatures that are enemies of God. And Christ drives home this point, and he says, are you not more valuable than they? If God puts this much detail into caring for the unclean things that do not matter, these unclean birds you are commanded to stay away from, and yet he feeds them, provides for them, sees to it that that they live out the days he has numbered for them, what do you think he's going to do for you? Christ has come to redeem. Christ has come to lay down his life for you. What do you think the Father is going to do for you? Isn't Isn't there more to life? Then what shall we eat? What shall we wear? Is what Christ wants us to go back to. Now, he humbles us with an intention of asking this question. This question of what can we add to ourselves by being anxious? 
So verse 25 now. Well, what are we adding to ourselves? Now, this isn't intended entirely to just slap us on the cheek. I mean, there's a slight, soft sort of slap that's going on there. But it's an invitation for us to understand how weak we are. Because he's, he's laying out the reality, do we number our days? Well, we don't. This is a problem that we're getting at with the previous rich fool. It's not that he wants to build storehouses. It's not that he had an abundant harvest. It's that he dwells in the comfort of saying, I have an abundance, therefore I can celebrate life. And, and the point God's making is, how do you know you're going to live through tomorrow? And that's what Christ is asking us. He's asking us to sort of do this reflection in our moments of, of, of worry, our, our moments of, of anxiety, and saying, wait a minute, can I really add a day to my life? Do I determine my days? And when we go, no, I, I don't. Who determines my days? Oh, my God does. And if God cares about these ravens, as he uses that analogy, how much more does he care for me? This is where it's that reminder, bring this to the Lord. He hears these concerns. He knows what you need. And so Christ is saying, listen, you can't add to your days trust in your God. And as we hear about that, we say, well, if we can't add to our days, why, why are we why are we going to continue to go down this path? And this is the invitation. Your God loves you. Your God cares for you. Christ wants us to know this. It isn't just do not be anxious, which Christ could say. It's Christ inviting us to sort of walk through this. What are you going to accomplish? What's going to happen? How are you going to benefit yourself at the end of this? You say, well, I'm not. I need to again trust that my Lord is sovereign. He has numbered my days as he has numbered the days of the unclean, disgusting raven. If he cares for the raven, how much more for me? So that's dealing with the food issue. Now the clothing issue, the lilies of the field. And again, you can understand in this society the struggle that goes on with poverty. You know, you hear of the one tunic give the person two tunics. So you can understand that this issue of clothing is not like what, what we have, where we can go to different places, uh, we can get different assistance, we can get hand-me-downs. There's options we have. But in this culture, it's, it's possible you're going to go through life and not have an adequate covering. And so Christ is saying, well, let's, let's think about what, what else God does. So he cares for the unclean ravens, the beauty of the fields, you know, and, and this is something where uh, when you look out in the spring, I encourage you, contemplate, think about this passage when you look at the painted hills and say, my goodness, look at the beauty, look at the color, look at, at what God has done in, in painting all that and how God has purposely done this is, is Christ's point. And so Christ is saying, if God is that deliberate to clothe the hills in that majestic beauty, uh, reflecting on his glory. What do you think he's going to do for you? You think he's just going to abandon you? You think he's just not going to care about you? You think he's just going to turn his back and not really be concerned and desire to walk with you? That's the intention of what Christ is getting at here. There's, there's something more. If he goes through this effort for something that's going to spring up one day and die the next, well, what do you think he's going to do for you? 
the people he's come to redeem, the people that uh, he has certainly uh, sought out to secure and to bring into his rest. And so when Christ lays this out, again, he's not just saying don't sin. He's laying out for us why ultimately it, it becomes something that while it may weigh on us, this becomes something that's a bit of an absurdity when we are totally absurd when we truly think of the providence of God. And so we think, okay, well then, where do we fix our mind? What do we do with this uh, when Christ lays us out? Well, when Christ goes on, he tells us where we are to set our minds, where we are to set our affections. He tells us then that we are to seek something. And this gives us a clue into the previous parable and why this is a problem. He tells us that we're to seek the kingdom of God. And so when we seek the kingdom of God, we're not to seek what we are to eat and what we are to wear. Now, and he mentions that this is what the Gentiles are consumed about. We, we can hear verse 29 and say, well, is it sinful then to have a grocery list? Uh, is it sinful to have a freezer? Is it sinful to have a refrigerator? If we're not to seek what we are to eat. Uh, the reality is the seeking what you are to eat. And Luke's gospel does a great uh, job of laying this out with the banquet scenes. Uh, so how someone would basically spread the table with, with the array of food and the types of food would testify to their class. Uh, you can imagine when you think of some cultures even today that people will put themselves in financial harm uh, to lay out an incredible feast so people will think they're far more prestigious than they are. And so that's what Christ is saying with the Gentiles. He's saying don't, don't do this stuff just to have this a particular status or to try and show your prestige before the world. That's what the Gentiles seek. That, that's what the world seeks, trying to find their status before man. And he's saying, don't, don't seek that. And this is the beauty of the feast scenes, Christ sitting down, the pictures of Christ uh, bringing us into the ultimate feast scene of heaven. That's what Luke's gospel, uh, one of the themes in Luke's gospel that drives the message of, of his narrative. But nevertheless, in terms of this, don't seek these things. He's telling us, don't seek this food, don't seek this clothing to, to appear to be prestigious. We find in verse 31, what are we to seek? Or to seek his kingdom. In other words, what Christ is telling us to do is to understand that in this seeking, our priority is in the Lord. And so when we seek his kingdom, we trust that God's going to take care of everything else. This is something that, again, as Christ lays this out, and even as Luke's gospel is certainly more of a summary than what you have in Matthew's gospel, may even be a different sermon with the same themes that Christ lays out here. But nevertheless, he's still taking this time to develop the importance of understanding that as our priorities are, are Seeking Christ and understanding his ways and his wisdom is not just, well, we'll be spiritually filled, but we'll be physically malnourished. It's rather the Father saying, no, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to see to it that your needs are met. I'm going to see to it that you will get through these days. Uh, we'll get into this more with the Lord's Prayer. But again, it's that same notion of give us this day our daily bread. What are we asking? Give me what I physically need. Provide for me. Care for me. Thank you for your blessings. 
is the force of what's going on here. So when you have this exhortation of saying, listen, seek his kingdom as a father cares for the ravens, as he cares for the clothing of the fields, so he's going to care for you. Have that as a priority. Understand that, that as you live your life, understand that this life in this world is not something that is going to endure and is going to last. This is where he warns us, don't lay up treasures on this earth. Moth, thieves come in, they steal, they rob, they destroy. So set your, your priority, your affections, your heart in terms of his kingdom. This is something that endures. The Father will provide for you. Now when you back up and you listen to who the, the man is, what does he say in Luke 12 verse 19? And I will say to my soul, so he's saying to his inner being, to the essence of who he is. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So he's basically taking a, a pagan slogan upon his lips, saying, I've, I've set out the abundance of everything I need, everything I want. And as I have this overabundance, I will live out my days in plenty. And this is where the Lord's pointing out, but if I don't give you the days to live out, you won't live them out. And that's the point of the parable. That we have to understand that as God has numbered our days, and as God is the one who has redeemed, we will live out those days that God has determined for us. And so Christ's point is it's not just do not be anxious. I mean, that's certainly the, the thrust of it. But do not be anxious because you need to know who your God is. He's a creator. He's a sustainer. He's a redeemer. If he cares for the unclean and the worthless things of this creation, how much more is he going to care for those whom he has redeemed, the people he has set apart unto himself? And so this is why uh, we fight against being anxious and being concerned about tomorrow. Because our Lord again here is laying out I am your shield and defender. And so in conclusion then, what is the Lord telling us then to encourage us? Is he just telling us do not worry, just asserting it, giving it as a command? Well, the encouragement is God created this world. He knows what the creatures need. As he knows what the creatures need, and as he's the one who brings about the different seasons and orders it in his providence, how much more does he know us? And if you really go back to the creation account, the animals come into being by a command. God commands. We find there's a swarming things, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. It's a command. But with man, it's not just a command. God gets down in the dirt, forms man intimately, and breathes into his mouth, giving him the breath of life. So you can understand the force of how much more is your father going to care for you. You weren't just commanded to come into existence. You were created by the hand of God literally from the dust, receiving the breath of life from God himself. How much more is he going to care for those that he has sent his son to redeem? So why not then just assert do not worry? Because God is one who knows who we are. We are weak. We're prone to worry, prone to wander, prone to be anxious about tomorrow, prone to let our minds wander to what that may be. 
And so God's not just simply slapping us in the face and saying, don't worry, which he could do, and he'd be fully righteous in doing that. But rather, he wants us to understand and assure us as our shield and defender, as our redeemer, as our creator, as our sustainer, he is a God who is going to see to it that we will live out every day he has numbered for us. We will have everything we need, and many times if we think back in life, more than what we actually need. That God is a gracious giver and provider. That's what Christ wants us to understand. And so as we set our priorities on his kingdom and our pursuit of him, Christ is saying, trust that the Father is going to see to it that everything else is going to fall into place. Live your life before his face for his honor and glory. Everything else will fall into place is a promise that Christ is giving us. He's telling us then and assuring us if I care for the unclean, if I care for, in a sense, the absurd, the grass of the field that you don't think about much, you might notice it, but we don't think about cultivating it or, or spraying it or watering it. But yet God's the one who sees to it. It springs to life, sees to it that it dies. How much more do we mean to him as his redeemed? Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, May the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.